Today's guest is Frank Mondoze. Frank teaches about sacred sexuality and for many years ran sensual entertainment events. And Frank and I met, well, we spoke in his home in Montreal, where I am physically right now, but we met back in Arizona at Laurie Handler's house. Laurie's a good friend of mine. Um, if you listen to the podcast, you may remember her. She was on maybe six months ago or so. And I met Frank at a dinner party she had at her home. We had a great conversation then. We had a great conversation here. And yeah, I mean, even before we really got to get to know each other, um, I I've been hearing positive things about Frank for a long time because we're both very close with Laurie Handlers. And Frank and Laurie worked together at ISTA, the International School of Temple Arts, which I've also mentioned on the podcast as a Tantra school that I've had many positive experiences with. And Frank and Laurie started many of the cities that ISTA is involved in, along with Crystal Dawn, who's another teacher that Frank mentions on the podcast. And uh, we had a great conversation. I think it became particularly interesting around the 10-minute mark where Frank started speaking about his life. He definitely has had a fun life. He goes by the spiritual playboy on YouTube, so you can check out his channel. Uh, he definitely lives up to that name, I'd say. At least, you know, he's had a very fun life, and um, it was fun speaking with him. So please enjoy episode 064, Frank Mondoze, Spiritual Playboy. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, part of the Gotham Podcast Studio Network in New York, New York. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, right, Frank Mondoze. Thanks for having me in your home. We're here in Montreal. Thanks, Ruan, for uh, coming over and inviting me for this conversation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we met about eight months ago, I think, something around that, at Lori Handler's house, who's been on the show. Uh, can't remember what we spoke about. I remember it was a very fun dinner conversation. Um, but this is the first time we're really speaking, so I'd love to learn about you before we dive into topics of masculinity and sexuality, of course. So I was looking up online before this, and you seem to have a lot of different projects going on. Can you share those, uh, the broad strokes? Yeah. My main uh, thing these days is working in uh, sexual shamanism and sacred sexuality, primarily with the International School of Temple Arts, which I've been a facilitator there for four years and involved with them for uh, at least seven years. And I would say that I, wo I had my awakening in the, the jungles of Costa Rica. And when I came home, I was seeking. Before that, I was uh, working in entertainment. I was doing uh, central and large-scale erotic performance art parties. And what is that like, burlesque? Uh, burlesque was part of it. So uh -huh. I would have thousand-person parties where uh, people would come dressed and uh, in a celebration of femininity and eroticism and juiciness so it's like a um halloween meets new year's eve a few times a year uh -huh. and so it involved burlesque and erotic circus and all these pieces and uh, so i was doing that and then i i felt like something needed to change I found love in the jungles of Costa Rica and I came home and I was quite like lost and I found ISTA, the International School of Temple Arts, and I jumped in there for a one month uh, apprenticeship with uh, the founder, Baba Des Nichols. Mm -hmm. And from there I met uh, my mentor who took me on into um, mentorship of sexual shamanism for three years, which was uh, Crystal Dawn Morris. And from that point on, I joined the International School of Temple Arts. Since then, I've given about 30 trainings. Mm -hmm. You've done this stuff, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right. one and two. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Congrats. 
And I also do uh, a brotherhood journey with uh, an ISTA brother whose name is Nimai. He's a, an ISTA faculty apprentice. And we were talking one day and he said how passionate he was about doing men's work. And I was starting to feel the same things. And he showed me his ideas and I loved it. And we brought it to life. And now it's basically uh, an event called Remember Brotherhood Journey. And the idea is about uh, meeting with uh, brothers, a group of brothers, 25 on average, for five days uh, in nature. And it's a deep dive into masculinity, uh, the masculine archetype, um, how should men be showing up in the world, which means we need to remember what our uh, purpose is on the planet as uh, stewards of the planet, as um, uh, protectors of women and children. And how do we um, manage the current transformation and the sharing of power that we're starting to experience, which modern man is starting to need to contend to. In the past, it was men had the power and women like, you know, would be uh, subservient, let's call it, or second to men. Nowadays, women have uh, reached equality. So what that changes relationship, that changes power dynamic, that changes um, uh, workplace uh, politics and so on and so forth. So we like to look at what is the cross-section of the needs of the participants in the group. And throughout the week, we uh, do masculine archetypes, shadow work, dark, light, and we tailor the event towards the um, key needs the current group is uh, looking into. If it's difficulty with meeting women, then maybe we play a bit more into, um, you know, how to drop into your essence to be more magnetic towards the women that we're see mm -hmm. seeking. If it's about, um, you know, power and re relations to power, so then we, we look at that. So it's a, it's a really dynamic week-long event, and we're four uh, part, uh, facilitators that hold the container. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, let's dig into that because uh, when I was at recently at lunch with some of my college buddies and they know the work I do and the first, the question I get a lot and they were grilling me on it was, how do you know that your definition of masculinity is mine? And maybe something, I'm not going to ask you what's your definition of masculinity because that's such an abstract thing, but right. how do you help these guys find what's authentic to them when they're probably, they probably have all different problems and different gaps in their psyche. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so primarily uh, what we aim to do during that week is really start to address uh, and strip down the armor that we as men have uh, built around our hearts. Um, and so it's a it's an invitation into deeper vulnerability, uh, an opportunity to reveal yourself, reveal the parts that uh, you hold guilt over, that you hold shame over. We uh, instruct men or we offer uh, tools to deal with dense emotions. So what do you do? Like we, you know, we feel emotion, but we've, we're told we shouldn't feel emotion, but then so then we suppress it. So then it, it comes out in toxic ways. So it's like we actually give men an opportunity to um, drop into what's alive, uh, what wounds they may be uh, holding that are is actually influencing the way they show up. And when I say that, it's also how they're not showing up because of their guardedness. So... 
in you know one thing we all have in common is that we've all gone through a version of difficulty in our life all of which has left imprints or um you know milestones that uh enforce us or limit us in meeting the world in a certain way based on those reference points and oftentimes that is not our truest self that is not our greatest heart expression that is not our greatest pleasure and desire expression so we're always like meeting the world from a um a, a calculated or uh, indoctrinated perspective versus a truer, authentic self. And so we support men to find that truer, authentic version of their masculinity by dropping into their vulnerability and starting to dismantle the armor uh, in order to be able to listen to what's going on in their internal universes. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into, I mean, so you mentioned you had an awakening in Costa Rica, but how did you really get into this stuff? Like what was the, what was the emotional journey of Frank that led him to become this? Another great question. You're good. Um, it had to do with breakdown. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, coming to life challenge and uh, looking at life and actually saying i've got no fucking clue i thought i was going doing the right thing i worked my ass off and i'm hitting this wall and it's that moment where you know you metaphorically drop down on your knees and you say you look up to the heavens and you say help and this is when you're running these parties and yeah life was good running uh -huh. these parties i was starting to um seek a bit more like i wanted more I've, the reason my events were successful was because i was ahead of the curve in the realm of the expression of sexuality and errors the mondose events that's the mondose okay. events so that's that's existed long before tantra for you yes okay. absolutely so when before when i hit that breakdown i was in year six or seven and how that breakdown came was my vision of the growth of mondose in terms of like being successful in the world being a business success um you know acquiring the things that we need to acquire in order to have that quote unquote um version of su success that society is looking especially towards men like are you delivering are you creating are you making enough money are you impactful? Are you powerful? Like these are the pieces that us men unconsciously are seeking and we're defining as success. And I was doing that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I had set out as a success is to partner with a large scale event producer to, to bring my event to the next level. Mm -hmm. And I had envisioned one of two uh, businesses or companies. And one of those companies uh, reached out, we built a partnership and together it failed. Okay. <laughs> miserably mm -hmm. and so to me it's like i had to re-question my whole life i built my whole ev event or my whatever to get to this place so that i could have this as an expansion plan uh -huh. and that hit a wall so this is six or seven years into the business how old right. were you i was uh 33 34 and uh how did you get into the erotic party thing pre-tantra like what was that good question you must have gotten into that in your early 20s i've been a pervert all my life okay <laughs> so uh i've always actually 
if I dig deeper, uh, or and I'm more completely honest, I remember my parents used to fight over sexuality. And so I think that subconsciously made me always curious about what is this thing? Why does it carry so much charge? And like so, uh, one wanted to have sex and another didn't? Exactly. Okay. Or like, you know, timing and not having shame around uh, the kids. And they'd have this fight in front of the kids? Yeah. Okay. It, it would spill over, okay. right? It would spill yeah. out where, you uh-huh. know, ch- children are, are quite intelligent, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. they... They put pieces together. And so ultimately, um, I think I was always curious. So I would always, you know, explore the depths of sexuality. And I remember that time I used to watch Playboy TV and there was a show called Sexetra. And Sexetra used to travel the world and uh, and each city having some specialty around sexuality, whether it be a kink, uh, uh, you know, their burlesque, whether it be burlesque or swinger parties or mm-hmm. fetish parties. So they would go do that little mini doc documentaries and i used to watch this and i was fascinated and how old were you watching uh, probably 16 to 18 because i'm just remembering to 18 the first breasts i saw was in a playboy magazine i was maybe seven or eight and i remember the feeling in my body was like and a level of arousal I had never, because I guess it was zero to maybe 50. And maybe I've experienced higher than that as an adult. But like that, that jump was like, it's that, so, it's so was... imprinted. It's like, a, it's like a dragon. I, I don't think I'll ever be able to catch like the seeing boobs at eight years old in a playboy. Right. Anyway, so I can only imagine, I mean, I guess 16, you're almost an adult. But... Yeah. But I mean, by before mm-hmm. that, I had discovered uh, pornography as mm-hmm. a, as a young boy, probably around 11, 12 years old. Yeah. Uh, and so... You're always curious and always decoding it and always like wanting more information. And remember traveling for to to find the hot spots of uh, edgy sexuality and whether it be uh, Amsterdam or Miami, you know, I would, mm-hmm. or J- even Japan. When I went to Tokyo, I was like pulling out what were the kinkiest things that uh-huh. I could go experience while I'm there. And so I took all this back, and eventually uh, I wanted to create an event where... Just, just, just for timeline, yeah. uh, in your early 20s you were traveling around? Uh, I would say mid-20s. Okay, gotcha. Around when you started this. Yeah, okay, with my ex-wife. It. We okay. were traveling and exploring different... And countries. what were you doing before then? I was I, I got a have a university degree in business uh, marketing major, uh-huh. and I worked in like... Uh, um, how do you call uh, multinational billion dollar companies like uh, during the to- uh, dot com boom? Okay, so you I, had a regular corporate I job. I had a whole regular until, corporate okay. job, and then I went also. Then I I went from tech, marketing in tech to uh, marketing fashion denim. Gotcha. And uh, so I was doing some a big name. So you're selling jeans. Selling jeans. <laughs> and and then, you must have gotten married really young. I'm just trying to get all. The, I got married the, at 23. Got it. Okay. And so then I, after selling jeans, uh, I was frustrated with the uh, sensual entertainment uh, nightlife in Montreal. Mm-hmm. It was either strippers or uh, swinger clubs, which mm-hmm. is an, equals anonymous public sex kind mm-hmm. of thing, which is not what I was into or not what my wife uh, desired. And so I'm like, I need to fill the gap here. I mm-hmm. want a high-end velvet rope exclusive event that uh, you know we would watch in the movies mm-hmm. and I want it littered with beautiful sensual uh, uh, performances. Like a Eyes Wide Shut? Eyes Wide Shut okay. meets Cirque du Soleil cool. meets a rave. Okay. That, actually, that's what okay. it is. That was a, exactly what it was. And uh, so that I, I created that and I did that for 14 years and I retired from that last year. 
Oh, okay. I stopped producing my. So Mondo's is done, or as far as those. Partners. I mean, there are probably potential for many resurrections here okay. and there, but as of right now, Frank Mondoze is no longer producing the erotic ball or the burlesque ball, which were my two flagship gotcha. events. I'm bummed I missed. I just found out about. Well, <laughs> you know, I have somebody running the two trademarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just not signed Mondoze. They're signed uh, Lexi Brown right now. Gotcha. Okay. Who started off in Mondoze and knows the culture and cool. is uh, who I appointed uh, heir of the Mondoze Empire. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I did those events and then I, I, I went to the jungle, had an awakening, um, found Ista, thought that maybe I'd become a quote-unquote sexual healer. Oh, so, not to keep interrupting, but yeah. uh, the awakening, what, could you break that? What exactly was the awakening? Like the Kundalini so, rising? No. Or, so, uh, I, I, I told you I hit the wall right. with the business, and I thought I was going to like get my name in lights mm-hmm. after partnering with this, this company, mm-hmm. and instead we failed. So, I'm mm-hmm. like, I need to rethink my whole life. Uh-huh. Like, I was putting all my eggs in this basket. I thought it was going somewhere. Seven years, it's either make it or break it. Yeah. And so, for me, in my mind, it was break it. So, I took a break and I went to the jungle and when I went to the jungle I was in an intentional community and there I was just watching the way people interacted uh, there was regular silence regular regular yoga I got some body work and when I started to get some body work I started to feel uh, the the pain that I was holding in my body somatically uh, from the stress of the business, from the what I felt parasitical energy that was feeding mm-hmm. feeding off of me during that time. You know, when you're in show business and you you know you can make things happen. You know, people want things from you, mm-hmm. and so I started to feel that. And when I just when I was getting massages, I was breaking down in tears, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Were wow. these regular massages?" Like I was I did regular massages, okay. but with energy and with uh-huh. gifted healers that are okay. working quite intentionally. This is not a regular massage; okay. it's an intentional massage to allow you like to sacral type or just no just healers, regular you know. body but i would uh-huh. say i wouldn't call her them reiki practitioners but to me it's like you know when you bring in energy and touch and actually so the piece was is that what broke me or opened me was that the key that we're looking for that magic agreement yeah. that you're looking for is was love and uh-huh. it was love, not a romantic love. Uh, it was just an energy of presence and commitment and uh, just conscious uh, touch and conscious mm-hmm. um, presence and commitment mm-hmm. to healing. And so I felt that. And that's what actually started to uh, break the armor around my heart. And that's when I discovered that love is the healing power of the universe. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, my God, like, maybe this is what I'm meant to be doing, not, you know, entertainment and marketing, show business and ego bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like my heart, I know the depth of my heart and it actually resonates that. But who am I to even think that I could be a quote unquote shaman or or healer or whatever uh, label you want to put on it? And so when I thought about what label I could, you know, work my way towards was sexual healer mm-hmm. because of the, my, my work in sexuality my whole mm-hmm. life. And therefore, um, I did the research and I found sacred sexuality and Tantra, of which I studied with Baba Dez, Crystal Don Morris, Deborah Taj Anapal, Lori Handlers. 
and uh, and now I'm just I'm I'm holding the piece of Ista mm -hmm. very powerfully. Mm -hmm. I'm working a lot. I've done 14 uh, Istas this year. Wow. Yeah, that's like three and a half months of Ista. If you've right. put it all together, it's uh, intense. Yeah, and uh, Costa Rica is the most popular destination for you. Or you go, you kind of go everywhere. I like. I know I'm all over the uh -huh. world. I I started in Montreal. Um, Arizona, so United States, I would say 60% of the cities that uh, ISTA is in the United States was seated by myself and Crystal Dawn. Okay. Um, so we brought it to life in that, in that place. Uh, I've done Central America. I've done Europe, multiple places in Europe, England. Uh, Turkey was amazing. That was very mm. special. Uh, Italy, Spain. Um, cool. But you live half the year in Costa Rica, right? Or something no, like that? I just like going to Costa Rica. Uh, okay. Costa Rica is my favorite. It's my home away from home. Mm -hmm. I just feel like it's uh, a beautiful, empowering land, which has the most ecosystems in the world, has no army and fully, you know, powered by renewable energy. So <laughs> technically, it's probably the closest thing to uh, authentic earth as you could find. And I feel that the minute I put my feet on the land, it has a, a heart resonance and my heart opens when mm. I'm there. Yeah. Uh, how would you, for those who don't know what you mean by sexual shamanism, yes. can you break that down? Mm -hmm. So the first thing we'd have to do is break down what shamanism is. Shamanism is the act of uh, being able to operate in multiple realms of reality. Um, the realm of reality that we live on the daily, or like this conversation is uh, uh, happening in, is what we would call ordinary reality. It's mm -hmm. like everything the way we perceive life. You could also get into states of non-ordinary reality. There's different ways to get into states of non-ordinary reality. And what's very popular today when you say shamanism is plant medicine. Mm -hmm. I don't do plant. I don't work with plant medicine. Mm -hmm. I don't touch plant medicine. I mean, I'm smoking a joint right now. <laughs> but that's the only plant medicine that I do. And it's much more, um, you know, as, a, as an ally. Yeah, and any reason why you avoid that stuff? Did you ever? Or I do. I do. It's a great ally. I've done it. I've, I've got, I, I, um, I give a lot of credit to the plant medicines as part of my healing journey, for mm -hmm. my personal healing journey. Uh, however, I don't. I don't practice it in the work that I do in gotcha. sexual oh, shamanism. So you didn't okay. I, I, okay. I've partaken in uh, ayahuasca, peyote, San Pedro, gotcha. consciously. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if I go back to shamanism, so you're operating in uh, non-ordinary realms of reality. So you usually get there through plant medicine. I found ways to get uh, to do it through uh, shamanic breath work. Mm -hmm which is like holotropic breath work, mm -hmm. which is breathing in and out at a pace that's uh, quite invigorated with, without the, the gaps. Yeah. I'll just say I won't give anything away from ISTA, but there's a point or something that is done in ISTA 2, and it was so fucking trippy. It was like um, it was almost like a salvia experience for me. I don't know if you've ever done it, but I, I was gone forever. I came back, I realized I'm in this room with a bunch of people doing this funky breath work and I just burst out laughing for what also felt like forever, which maybe 30 seconds. And that's and was... like an, a full-on ecstatic experience. So, so we use uh, breath work 
so we use sound, breath, and movement, sound, breath, and movement, which are the three keys of Tantra, to enter into non-ordinary states of reality. Now, when we enter non-ordinary states of reality, what are we doing? Uh, in shamanism, you are... Um, connecting with energy so you have the ability to connect with ed energy that could be uh, visually that could be sensorially that could be through sound uh, auditory so you connect to energy and then in connecting to that energy you're able to manipulate that energy so you're in your non-ordinary reality and you're working with subtle energy and manipulating the energy in order to have created a change in state in ordinary reality mm -hmm. so you're entering non-ordinary reality you're ex you're exploring and working with energy subtle energy mm -hmm. and when you come out into ordinary reality something has shifted or transformed mm -hmm. and we use this to clear the body of wounds and traumas or at least uh, begin to clear the body of wounds and traumas any blocks related to uh, pleasure, any blocks that are related to um, ownership of our bodies. So culturally, we've been indoctrinated in, let's say, 500 years of, of uh, torture and death by the church. Anything that had to do with sexuality, anything that had to do with um, extramarital affairs. So everything that had to do with sexuality was seen as dirty and bad and corporal, terrestrial, was uh, shamed and actually linked with physical violence and pain. So cellularly, we hold this pain in our body and therefore we meet love, we meet eroticism, we meet desire, pleasure, and our bodies, our physical bodies, from a shame and fear-stricken state. Mm -hmm. And if someone... Is, is it fair to say that the reason why you would go out of this ordinary reality is that it's faster or it's uh, you're more malleable as opposed to just trudging along so that's a good question as well so you could go you know western in the west we use psychotherapy mostly it's the it's working through the traumas using the mind and so that is what we at with this work is doing is actually working on the flip side of that we want to get out of mind. The whole journey is about getting out of mind and connecting with the other very powerful information systems that we have in our body, including the full body, the heart, and the gut, as well as the genitals who have a wisdom of their own. So we're supporting individuals to start listening to the, all the parts of their body and with the silence and with the um, connection to the subtle energies in the non-ordinary reality, you're able to actually hear what's going on and open to it and therefore address it and therefore like close some loops and as you close some loops it's like um it's like taking a, a a tin can and punching a bunch of holes in the tin can and you start to pour water at a consistent rate in this tin can the tin can like water being power and so the tin can it, it's going to continuously be leaking this water slash power 
constantly because of all these holes and all these wounds or traumas that we hold with that we haven't addressed that we haven't moved somatically forget about understanding them and whatnot it's about moving them out of your body mm-hmm. that we're plugging the holes and so as you plug these holes your body becomes a, a vehicle that is hold is able to hold greater amounts of intensity greater amounts of power to which you can then direct towards the direction of which you want to create in the world. And so when you're reappropriating this leaked energy through your subconscious to your wounds, and you take it and you deliver it towards your desires and what you want to create in the world, now you're actually enacting change. You're becoming the creator of your own reality. And ultimately, this is our potential, and this is what sexual shamanism aims to do, is to help you reclaim uh, disowned or disempowered uh, energy, and refocus it towards um, your most amazing life possible that you could dream of. Can you give some examples of maybe things or forms of leaks that you see in men commonly? Maybe in all people, but it sounds like, you know, I mean, sexual shame is so huge in men right now. I'm sure you, you come across that in your, in your men's retreats. Yeah. Excellent question. Um, so, hmm. So what's coming up a lot now, really fresh, that has even started before the Me Too movement, but the Me Too movement really cemented it. It's this piece of men being frozen. So like right now, men don't know how they're supposed to be meeting women. It's like, are they supposed to be direct? Are they supposed to be charming? Are they like, you know, there's there's always a reason for uh, why the approach is uh, shameable. So it's like, so the Me Too movement came and um, shone light on a much needed topic, which was uh, the... Uh, abuse of power to take advantage and manipulate uh, women uh, towards around their sexuality. And so this has been a two-way street, though. It's like men use power and money to obtain sex and women use their body to obtain power and money. This has been a journey. So that was a a very important issue to put light on. But what emerged out of that was the public shaming of some people that deserved that public shaming and other people that it's questionable. And so men are watching this and they're like, I'm shitting bricks. Am I supposed to be like outgoing and, and uh, forward, which, you know, when you talk to women, when they're really honest, you know, women like this energy of a conscious ravishment, this idea of being taken, you know, men as well. And, but men are losing the ability to even understand uh, how that feels or what what it is because they're holding themselves back because they're too stuck in the overthinking of how to meet a woman that's going to, you know, uh, not make them the predator. So like one person said to me recently that really anchored it, growing up as a man, he got two major... um, um, reference points to what men are men are predators no men want sex men want sex 
and men are predators. Mm -hmm. That's what he grew up as the reference point mm -hmm. to how he feels seen. Mm -hmm. So when he moves into the world, he's seen either as like needing to prove his manhood through how much sex he's had, and in doing so is also potentially a predator. Yeah. So it's like, what are men supposed to do here? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it creates a freeze. Mm -hmm. So uh, right now, it's like part of the, the, the uh, remember journey is about saying, hey, we're, we have an energy. Our energy is forward and uh, in the active. So if we uh, choose to look at that as shameful or something violent or aggressive, we have already started to shame ourselves. And we've, it's, it's the beginning of the end of being a, uh, a pole one of the poles to be in manifestation to be in creation you need two poles the active and the passive mm -hmm. uh, you could also call it the masculine the feminine the yin the yang black white mm -hmm. all the, the duality it's always in two poles and so it's like we're if we're starting to shame one of the poles we're actually starting to deconstruct desire mm -hmm. so it's it's we're walking on a on on a, on a, on a like a, how do you call it? a fine a fine line and, and so that's one of the pieces the other pieces also you know men actually feeling um healthy shame around the offenses that they uh created in the past when they were more ignorant and less conscious and that's a beautiful journey to watch men like really own their excuse me own their um uh Perp uh, perpetration transgressions actually. yeah transgressions and perpetration and it's like you know there's there's a thought process a thought uh theory out there that says like when one atones for what they have done they've actually like cleaned their slate mm -hmm. so the the action of um owning and taking accountability and making an effort to make right however that looks like, mm -hmm. an effort to make right, equates atonement. And when you do go into atonement, you've actually like released the sentencing of this perpetration. And so spiritually, I'm speaking, of course, mm -hmm. right? And that you know means working with possible victims and whatnot. Yeah, I think it's also interesting, and it's probably not true all the time, but very often the toxic expressions or the perpetrations are caused by shame in the first place. Like a guy who doesn't have sexual shame is less likely to do something unintentionally exactly. offend or you violate. It. So, you know, ultimately when we look at this whole like healing cycle, let's say call it planetary healing cycle, because that's the big piece that we're looking at is that we got to understand that it's hurt people that hurts people. So people that have been wounded and have been traumatized are primarily the people that are actually wounding and traumatizing. People that are like brought up in healthy environments that don't have massive trauma, you know, there's, they're much more well-adjusted. Uh, they're much more uh, not likely to create, uh, have uh, violent acts. And that's a generalization. But so the, the reason I'm saying this is because if we really want to heal as a collective, if the focus is all on how bad collective man is, we've lost. 
if we all say we need to start taking accountability and meeting these situations with more compassion because ultimately hurt people hurt people. So whose wounds are actually more valuable? And that's when we start putting value on the type of perpetration. Oh, I was this. That means my value of um, wounding is worth more than yours because you only experience this. Can we just not say that these wounds, these experiences that happen in our life affect the way we move in the world and have a, a drastic effect with how we meet the world emotionally? And therefore, they're all valuable. And they all need to be acknowledged in order for us to actually be able to meet each other in a space of healing and vulnerability, or else one will always have the defense up. Yeah. yeah I, used to, I mean, it would drive me nuts during the Me Too when men were blanket shamed because I, I would bring up like, hey, you can't tell young boys that they should feel guilty for all these things. And then people come back and say, well, they can feel bad because women have been raped. It's like, it's not whether one is worse than the other. It's just like you're perpetuating the same thing. You're probably causing rapists in the future by blanket shaming. And anyway, uh, someone has to stop the cycle. Um, I want to go back to something is uh, relevant to me now. The whole you were mentioning sex and and money, or said the exchange of sex and power, and this is something I've been thinking about recently because you know with something even as simple as who should pay for a date. Like I used to be very hard about uh, never paying for women, and like you should not play into that exchange and stuff like that. I was also young and broke, and it's maybe me justifying not paying for dinners. But I love that. Yeah, but now I'm like, uh, you know, and now it's actually it feels very good to provide. It feels there is something masculine about providing, even if she doesn't need it. Or I almost like, you know, it feels good to fill that. And I have a I have women in my life who are playing with the idea of be like being a sugar baby, and like why not? It, like there's something very polar about it. Do you have thoughts on on that? Well, I could tell you that I I definitely pay for uh, 75 or now I'd say about 65 percent of all dinner dates I go on mm -hmm. I'll pay um, and I don't know if it has to do with the exchange of power and money but there's something from that perspective I am a bit old-fashioned I feel like um, it's part of the pursuit and it's a part of the romance that there is an effort to uh, you know, say, hey, I I want to take you out. It's like, who's yeah. asking who out? You yeah. know, if it's like we're hanging out as buddies and we're like, let's go grab a bite, uh -huh. then it's like, okay, we're buddies, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's like, I'm asking you out, hey, would you like to go out with me? I think the proper thing to do is, um, is pay, uh -huh. you know? And yeah. that's going, it doesn't matter if it's the man or the woman, right? Uh, I think it's romantic. Uh, I like it. Yeah, I think there's something. I mean, I think it's so instinctual. It's like tied to building the nest or the setting the cave or something. And I was thinking about this too. Like, if I'm dating a woman who, let's say, has way more money than me, because men in, in many situations, men and women make about the same or whatever, and I don't have the opportunity to provide, I'm almost obsolete. So, <laughs> it's like she yes. has the womb; she can make babies. Right. Like, what am I doing here if if not right. providing and creating safety? Right. And there's something interesting about that because ultimately, you know, so there's this thing about women who, like, you could do it all on your own. You, you've got it all together. But if a man is trying to support, like to be supportive, and they don't have that space mm -hmm. for it, it does throw off the balance. Yeah. You know, like, like man's role is purpose. Mm -hmm. So first of all, if they're lucky enough 
if a man is lucky enough to get in alignment with his sacred purpose and dedicate his life to his sacred purpose, he's living the fullness of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the masculine pole. Mm-hmm. Now, part of purpose is being connected in relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I have comments i have a whole chapter maybe we'll do another one on love eros and relating which is uh-huh. I'm, I'm giving a different perspective um where were we Sorry. uh money women power uh, just a statistic i remember now um the number one cause of divorce at least in the united states is when the woman makes more money than the men it's the number one indicator right and it's like you know it's not a very liberal idea but it's like it's like if you can't beat the statistics, like no one. And the other, the second highest uh, indicator, I believe, is when the woman has higher than average testosterone. It's like the. So, I mean, we look at it maybe from a tantra perspective, but clearly the polarity isn't available if the woman is outmasculining the man. Right. But you know. Yeah. So that that's exactly what we were, we were talking about. So it's like if the man does not have an opportunity to uh, bring purpose into the relationship. Mm-hmm. He's lost. He doesn't have a, a, a role, yeah. and so that's another one of the leaks that we're talking. We were talking about before mm-hmm. about the man, uh, the masculine, that we're seeing is like, what is our purpose? Mm-hmm. Like, are we supposed to show up and take care of things and direct things, or are we supposed to give women their space because they know? as much or better than us like Mm -hmm. what's the proper way the one one side you're a pushover the other side you're domineering yeah and so they're wanting us to walk that perfect fine line and i'm like fuck it fuck it all and i'm like fine who are you who are you as an energy Mm -hmm. drop into your authentic energy recognize what's shadow and then what's conscious and we're moved towards clearing the shadow and bringing conscious action, but be in your authentic energy. Because once you're not in your authentic energy, then you're going to magnetize your people. Mm-hmm. You're going you're gonna to polarize and then you're going to magnetize. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's exactly what you want to be doing. It's like you want to be efficient. You don't want to be wasting your time with all the people and making everybody like you. Fuck that. It's never going to happen. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know, for some reason, every woman in my life is a feminist. Uh, I don't know. That's who I attract or I'm attracted to. And, uh, you know, having these conversations intellectually, often I would get pushed back. Like, no, no, this is not how it's supposed to be. But if I just am the way I choose to be, most of the women I'm close with will be like, you know what? It does feel a lot better to let you handle things or do the guy stuff. And I think it's um, a conscious, intentional reclaiming i don't even want to call them traditional values i think they're but instinctual values instinctual, that maybe have gotten yes. co-opted by culture and maybe went in an extreme exactly way. yeah completely agree with because i almost every straight woman i've met when really given the choice and there's no pressure in either direction does want to do the woman like womanly things or feminine yeah and, and there's almost a piece like oh to prove that we're like modern and politically correct it's like we have to you know be different and it's like actually I talk to a lot of women and some feminist women also feel like, fuck, it's great that we got this freedom, but now we're stuck. We actually have to work. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, they didn't have to work. You know, it came with its own limitations that, you know, needed to be evolved from. But it's this piece around uh, careful for what you wish for. Yeah. Careful for what you wish for. (laughs) Yeah. I was telling telling a woman recently, it's like, uh, 
I would actually rather not have, I mean, it's a lot of pressure to have to make the decisions and lead and do something that might piss you off. Or like, it's almost easier to let you take care of things right. yourself. Like it's actually the easier route. Right. I'm not taking power because it's fun for me. It's right. actually pressure, but I'm doing it because it makes us both happier in the long run. Right. Yeah. I love, I love the, the, the perspective for sure. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned it. I wanted to ask you about it anyway. Uh, Love Eros Relating. You said it's a new set of ideas. Yeah. So I've started. um, So I've been synthesizing my experience of love and relating and how the, the role of desire. And I basically came down to the fact that, you know, the way that we love in our culture or the, the, in general, the mainstream version of love um, is a conditioned and commercialized uh, asset. Mm-hmm. Love is. And ultimately, I have come up with, I've come to the essence of what love is for me, at least in relationship. And uh, I define it as love is supporting contributing and celebrating the expansion of the beloved mm-hmm. supporting contributing and celebrating the expansion of the beloved and basically what that means is that if you actually love somebody if you're not using love as a way to get something mm-hmm. Like that's what culturally we're doing. It's like ah, I want I want to fall in love. I want to be in love. My other half. I can't live if living is without you. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's basically codependence and fear. Mm-hmm. That's the code. Mm-hmm. The code of the love that we're experiencing is basically codependence and fear, packaged, painted up in a pretty bowl called love. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, actually, no, love is big, so much bigger than that and so much more difficult, you know, in, in a certain way, because actually love can, o- my experience of love is only one directional, it's giving. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm saying I am loving, which is my experience of love, I am loving, that's the action. It's only outward. It's the care towards, it's a generous action towards the betterment of the other. Mm-hmm. And well, what do you say to a guy who is not getting laid, doesn't date a lot, doesn't have a lot, is not receiving a lot of love? Let's say not even with from women, just that he's not receiving a lot of love and he's listening to this and, and you're talking about like, well, I'm not taking, I'm giving love. He's like, what the hell, Frank? Like, when do I get some? Like, yeah. That's what a, do you say to him? I, I say a couple of things. I say, number one, I'm sorry that our society uh, commodifies um, our bodies and our sexuality so much so that women feel unsafe to um, um, drop into their desire and connect more authentically and uh, availably. Actually, that's the first thing I say. Second thing I say is that if you are in a version of lack or whatever, energetically, you might be holding something that is coming off as completely unattractive. And so the, the beginning of the journey is to start to look at like, what is your energy and how do you show up? Are you like too much of a nice guy pleasing? That's not sexy. Are you like a bit slimy? And like, when you feel like the woman is kind of open that you put on this like last cheesy curveball line that is quite like aggressive um and that puts somebody in an un- 
uncomfortable situation, that might not be helping either. There's a million and one reasons why we could be in lack. And I was a man that was in lack for, I would say, some years, actually. And I just couldn't close. And I had to, ultimately, I recognized that in my body, I was holding an energy of bitterness. And part of that bitterness had to do with my past. Part of that bitterness had the inability to connect, uh, just desiring to connect. And so what I needed to do is start to get vulnerable and to do the work and start to love myself. And this is like, when I say love is supporting, contributing, and celebrating the expansion of the beloved, that's like granted that you have a good self-care and self, uh, self relationship. And where I be start to become powerful is when I just start to do the, my work on myself and, um, when I, um, was really working towards, being happy and being alone. I had to really find a place that I was comfortable with being alone so that when I was with a woman, I wasn't needy. Because if you're needy, that comes off very quickly and it's like it's like kryptonite neediness. So the only way I could learn how to uh, you know be less needy is to be comfortable being alone understanding that I am my best beloved, that I'm full in myself. Um, however, it does help to get some touch and, and uh, sensuality and a dose of arrows. And if I look at my, my personal life, when I am in, in community, when I am in uh, proximity of uh, the polar energies, and I have the ability to... Uh, um, you know, put our bodies together, whether it be hugging, whether it be smiles, laughter, touch, commonality, that my sexual expression uh, feels a lot more healthy. Mm -hmm. It's less needy. But when I'm isolated, I find that oftentimes that my the outlet of my desires is a, a tad more toxic if I am self-reflective. Yeah. It's such a good point, like with, uh, especially with relating with women, it's like the Matthew effect is so in uh in effect, uh, to those who have more will be given and to those who have none, all will be taken. It's like the right. most unattractive thing to a woman is sensing that you are desperate. Whereas like, it, it doesn't make sense. It's not egalitarian, but it's just how, it's just how it is. It's like, yeah, it's, I mean, there's many different ways to put it. it, it. it well, ultimately yeah. it doesn't create safety. Mm -hmm. If a man is needy, he's not a safe bet. He's not a safe bet for multiple reasons. And some of that is logical, that's read through the mind, and some of that is just genetic. It's like read through the body. It's like it's the animal body. It's the reptilian body that's just like reading into that and saying that's not safe. Yeah, and it's so hard because for a guy who's starving for it, and it's like coming close. It's hard to convince him like, oh, you, you have to not I know. grab for it. I know. But he's like, I don't know if I'm going to get it otherwise. But you're, you, you definitely won't get it if you grab for it. It's the, So this it's is the piece. A... So I would like talk to the sisters in this place. And it's like, honestly, my wish and hope is that, uh, you know, we all do our healing work. So men learn to meet a woman and touch a woman in a way that is inspiring. That's my hope for men. My hope for women is that they, you you know, uh, they they too do their personal work, and then they find a place where they could own their desire, they own their body, they own their pleasure, and it's like <clears throat> that. Actually, sharing that is not shameful. It's not slutty. It's not hoary, and 
that's completely beautiful. And when we come from a not needy place as well, and so this is the whole love, eros, and relating that we'll do another talk on, is that um, in, in sharing this energy, we all just start to get more of what we need. And therefore, we can meet at a much healthier place versus such a polarized place that is creating like this sucking, needy energy. And on the other hand, women hold back their sexuality as a, as a, a trading card, as a negotiation piece, as a, um, you know, you know, we've always heard the expression about "don't uh, give away uh, the milk." Why get why get the cow when the milk when you can get the milk for free? Blah blah blah. Horrible expression. But it's like actually that's meant to keep uh, women uh, ashamed of their sexuality and and bargaining it. Whereas instead of being in full expression of it, which would be better for their own bodies as well as uh, culturally, where men would have more access to uh, beloveds and sharing love and arrows in a way that is healthy and conscious yeah and uh i know maybe we'll get into it some other time but with uh the way you're speaking about the giving love i've been playing with this with other resources i've been playing with this with money actually and like oh if i give even if i think it's more than i should give it reinforces in my mind that i have even if i don't have like if you can give ten dollars then you realizing to yourself you don't need it it's like if you can really give love you're you're telling yourself that you're not in lack of it because right. it's so you know subjective anyway. Yeah, and it takes a reset. And I'm going to go back to the place of how did this all begin with me? And it began when I had all my life planned out, and it was marked. There was all the milestones, and I accomplished all the milestones, and I hit a dead end. And I said, what? Like, I thought this was my purpose. I thought this is what I was supposed to do. And I dropped down to my knees, and I said. Uh, help. And when I said help, I honestly opened myself to uh, the support. And I believe that we all have access to support uh, that is etheric, that is unexplainable. And so, you know, actually dropping in and saying, I need help. And then staying open to see what emerges in your life. And for me, it was finding love in a forest in Costa Rica and then dropping into ISTA and then through studying ISTA, doing my healing work and therefore creating space to call in uh, the, the abundance of eroticism that I now get to experience. And as I shared in my talk in London, it's like the key though is really like committing to being loving in, in your life. And that is a generous act. It's the bottom line. I have a a talk on uh, on a podcast on my podcast, the Daring World podcast. So go check that out uh, to hear more about uh, what I mean about uh, love, eros, and relating. Yeah, well, full circle, and it yes. already started. And actually, on that note, um, where can people find out more about your work? Yeah, everything is on frankmondose.com from my uh, events. Uh, my trainings to ecstatic dance, shamanic breath work, 
um, my podcasts as well as my uh, YouTube web series, uh, The Spiritual Playboy. Mm-hmm. So like, there's plenty of content to chew on uh, online, and uh, most of it is uh, pretty decent, though, if I were may say so. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad we got to link up today. Thank you, Ruan. I appreciate the conversation. It was insightful. It was deep. It was authentic. I hope people felt uh, the authenticity, and I feel that uh, your questions were so bad on i really thoroughly enjoyed uh how you kept this conversation going and jamming in such beautiful directions a real pleasure yeah my pleasure man Um, peace hey thanks for listening to the podcast if you want to catch the rest of my work go to ruando.com catch me on social media at ruando and please do not forget to subscribe